Good morning. August is always fun um, because when we do the children's ministry volunteers, we keep the kids in the service. And all of a sudden, volunteers go up. You know, it's just a miracle how that happens. Um, so this is not intensely planned or anything, you know. Just, I just love miracles. Um, this one I'm wrapping up, I guess we're wrapping up this series on the book of Malachi. We've been going through the book of Malachi, we've been talking about um, faithfulness in, in body and spirit. And we said that that's the core component of what Malachi is calling us to. What's interesting about this book is that it wraps up. It's almost like the, the last six verses serve as an addendum. But before we get into it, one is here this quote um, by a German philosopher, Frederick Nietzsche. Um, he says this, he wrote in um, The Wanderer and His Shadow. Not every end is a goal. The end of a melody is not its goal, but nonetheless, if the melody had not reached its end, it would not have reached its goal either. Now, what's interesting about that is I don't know much about music, right? Like, it's like I'm not going to break down melody and, and all of that. But I think the reason I love this quote is because I think there's two or three things he's saying that's going to help us, and I want us to have that as a framework as we go to the end of Malachi. The first one is Nietzsche seems to believe that the end in and of itself is not the destination, right? Like, getting to the end doesn't mean you've arrived, right? It's almost like we have kids in the century, right? You, you graduate elementary school, you haven't arrived yet, right? You graduate middle school, you haven't arrived yet. You graduate high school, you haven't arrived yet, right? Some of us are, are 40 and we still haven't arrived yet, right? So the idea here is that not every end is a goal. And, and sometimes just getting to the end doesn't mean you've arrived. I think that's helpful in thinking about the book of Malachi. There's a lot of people who look at it and say, okay, now, Old Testament quotes, I'm done, right? Or some people are like, oh, we study Malachi, and I would have to go back to the Old Testament and the New Testament for a long time, right? We're done, we've arrived. But, but the end in of itself is not the destination. But also, the end in of itself may also not be the desired result. Uh, one of my, uh, my, my best coaches, my, my college wrestling coaches, he used to always tell us, like, you didn't lose, right? You just ran out of time. And none of us like hearing that because if you heard that, that means what? You lost. He's <laughs> just like, as soon as you come up the mat, that's the first thing he said to you come up the mat. He's like, wow, that must look really bad. Right? He was a close match and say something else like, good job. Right? And you worked really hard. You looked good out there, you know? But when a coach trainer ever said you ran out of time, you're just like, ooh, it was rough. It was <laughs> like for everybody involved, right? But, but the end in of itself, right, in that situation, it's not the desired result. Meaning that sometimes we might reach the end of something and it might not end up the way we planned it or the way we wanted it, or the way we saw it happening, I think that's helpful in holding on to how Malachi ends, right? And also in this quote, I think we should touch on this idea that the in and of itself, right, it's not the destination, you haven't arrived, it's not the desired result maybe sometimes, but it's also not divorced from the journey. Right? How many times do you see Olympians or, or great champions, right? After they win something, they say it's not about what? The gold medal, right? It's not about the, the Super Bowl trophy, right? I'm a Mets fan, so I think they play baseball and they win championships every year. I haven't seen one in like 37 years, not that I'm counting anything. But apparently you get a championship, right? But a lot of times when people win, they say it's not about the championship, the medal. It's about the journey to get here, right? And so sometimes the end that we get to doesn't matter as much as the journey. So if the end is not a destination, if it's not a desired result, if it's not divorced from the journey, what is it? I think what Malachi kind of asserts in these last six verses is that the end is our divine destiny. That's the true end. 
What's fascinating about Malachi framing this picture from this last conversation from Yahweh God to the people is that when he picks the divine destiny, it's not the destination, it's not the desired results that the people thought they might get, and it's not the board from the journey that they were on. In fact, it's only the beginning. A uh, famous writer of my wife's family is Laura Ingalls Wilder. I think that the joke in the family is she named all the kids after books that Laura Ingalls Wilder are characters, right? And she has this line where she says, the end is truly just the beginning. And so that's all these things I want us to hold in mind as we get into these last six verses, the final verses of Mal- uh, Malachi. Why? Because Malachi's final message is going to be just like what he's been saying on the journey, that God is faithful. You ought to be faithful to God. If God is good, you ought to trust in God's mercy. If God is true, you can have peace in God's judgment. And then he wraps it all up by saying, okay, if God is faithful, good, and true, I want you to also remember that same God who's faithful, good, and true, that God is ours. Amen? Every Bible tells me now to Malachi chapter 4. We'll be reading the six verses here in Malachi 4, verses 1 to 6. We'll also have them up on the screen so you can follow there as well. Starting at verse 1. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and evil doers will be, will be troubled. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Welcome, children. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his grave. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed cows. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all of Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else, I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you so much this morning that we get a chance to remember what you told us. That we get a chance to kind of reflect upon the fact that none of us have arrived. That all of us are simply working and and making this journey towards you. But God, may this journey be led by you. May this journey held hand in hand with one another marching towards you, may this journey be not just for us, but truly for the people we love and are impacted by and even our world. So Father God, we pray now and we ask now that we may know your faithfulness, that we may know your goodness, that we know you are true. But most of all this morning, we do thank you that you have chosen us, that you have called us your people, that our divine destiny is not just the future forever with you, that we can taste that divine destiny now as life with you can begin today. So, Lord, we praise you. We lift up your name. We thank you. To the God who's faithful, good, and true. It's the God who promises us. And because he's faithful, good, and true, we know that what he promises us will be forever and ever. Amen? In this background, in this passage, Malachi is going to give kind of God's final addendum. So far in the book, we've been talking about different conversations going back and forth between Yahweh, God, and the people. But in this background, as we go to this addendum, some people call it the appendix of the book of Malachi, there's certain things we have to also remember. The first one is that God has chosen these people. It begins with 
Jacob have I loved, Israel have I loved, Esau have I hated. And when we talk about that, we talk about the idea that this wasn't an emotional thing. That, that to the ancients, love wasn't something you just you feel inside. Love was a commitment. And so what God's saying here is that I have been faithful to you, Jacob, but Esau has not been faithful to me. And the idea of love and hate in the ancient Hebrew mindset was, I think highly of faithfulness. But I hate unfaithfulness, right? So to love means to think highly of it, and to hate means to not think highly of. But but God's love that He gave the people, this covenant that He promised them, was met with dishonor. As generation after generation, we not only break the covenant, but they would not be faithful to God, they would not be faithful to each other. So God's love is met with dishonor, and God's people are characterized by disobedience. That's a harsh word. From Malachi to stand before the people and say, listen, for generations, for hundreds of years, for, for thousands of families, the one word that can characterize all of us is disobedience to God. But yet, even though the people were not faithful, even though the people were characterized by this disobedience, God's eternal purpose was that they would be His kingdom of peace. That's a beautiful phrase. Because to God, His people are meant to not only be redeemed, but to show the world what redeemed life looks like. To God, His people are not just meant to be saved, but to be the, 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 the bridge, right? The, 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 the peacemakers, the, the ones who actually are bringing others to God by not only how they live, but by how they love. To God, as kingdom of priests, we're not just to be redeemed, we're supposed to be reflectors of who God is. Our world should never say, where is God? Because God will forever say, I sent my spirit and I sent you. We, as kingdom of priests, were designed to draw others to God by how we live, by how we love. So God's purpose is for us and his people to be the kingdom of priests. But yet in this passage, as Malachi wraps up, he talks about God's day. And the day to come here for Malachi is this the divine destiny. And the divine destiny for those who are faithful to God is restoration, but also reconciliation. The day of the law is the day of the Lord that, that Malachi talked about actually just adds on to where he ends where we ended last week. In fact, the original Hebrew texts don't have a Malachi chapter four. They just go from, from 318 where we ended, and they go to 319 to 24. They don't have one to six. I think that's actually pretty interesting. And yet to them, God didn't stop in his halfway speech and say, now we have a new chapter. But it's even more deeper than that because I think he's connecting this and day or the day of divine promise. He's connecting it to the people who have been faithful to God. Remember last week we talked about the remnants, right? Those who are left over, those who have chosen to follow God. So this message is to the remnants who are saying, God, where are you? Where is justice? Why are the people who are evil triumphing? What is going on? This is the second half of that message to them. God speaks to the people, and he chooses to do it through Malachi and his messengers. And God promises, not just that I have Malachi, but remember, not just last week, but earlier in chapter 3, when Malachi is giving this word to the people, he kind of talks about two things at once. Jesus is first coming and Jesus is second coming. John the Baptist, and when Jesus comes again in the end, those were the two messengers in the two different times. He continues that pattern here in chapter 4. 
because he's going to be talking about what has happened or what will come. So you see all three messengers, Malachi giving the message today, John the Baptist will come 400 years later, and Jesus will come immediately after him. The first time before he comes again. The second thing that's also important here is that when we say this message is to the remnant, and it's not just to those people who say, I kind of believe in God, or I'm kind of into this God thing. The remnants in Malachi were people who feared the Lord. And we said fear the Lord last week wasn't just, hey, I'm scared of God, right? It was actually deep reverence. What does reverence mean to a society like ours that holds just about nothing in reverence? What does it mean to actually submit to the Lord? What does it mean to actually say, Jesus, you're the Lord of my life, not just in word, but everything I am, I'm going to give to you in submission to you? What does reverence look like in our society, in our culture, in ourselves as individuals, as a person, as a, as a, as a man, as a woman, as a child? What does it mean to live in reverence and full submission to the Lord? That is the question that Malachi keeps posing, because the remnant aren't the people who believe, the people who live in utter reverence of God. The people who respect and submit to God, and lastly, the people who rely on God. To the remnant, he says, I know you're worried about everyone you see around you who's evil and doing well. I know you're worried about the rich getting richer off the backs of the poor. I know you're worried about, you know, the people taking advantage of other people just so me and mine can do a little better. I know you're worried about all these things, but this is the message of the divine day to come. To the unfaithful, Malachi seems to say, dear unfaithful, I want you to know that judgment is coming. It is a fire that's coming that will consume you fully. And it's interesting because earlier in Malachi 3, when the fire comes to the faithful, it's a refining fire. It's a fire that cleanses. It's a fire that, that, that purifies. It's a fire that makes you more and more holy as it makes you more and more like Jesus. It's a good fire. But the fire that he talks about here is a fire that consumes fully. It's a fire that destroys. And so you want God's people to know, the faithful remnant to know. I know it seems like the dark is winning. I know it's all worth some time my best. The light is coming. I know it seems like everyone who does everything that's wrong is triumphing. But justice is coming. I know it seems like this world will never be put back together. But I've already started putting it back together. That this day of judgment will just be the consummation of all these things. That those who are unfaithful will meet a different side of the Lord. But then to the remnant, to the faithful, he says, yes, justice is coming. But joy is coming too. And he has a beautiful line about the sun of righteousness will rise. The ancients, when they talked about nature, I think this is interesting. I think it's kind of, at least I'm a city person, you know, so I'm divorced from nature most of the time. Like, I grew up in Philadelphia. We saw two stars at night. That was a great night. You know, oh, just like, wow, this is amazing, too. And then most of the times I live by the airport with an airplane, so you just have to, like, get over that, right? But the ancients believe, and I think a lot of times we kind of, Bemoan the ancients because we think we're just so much smarter than they could ever be, right? We're just more advanced than them. We know so much more than them, right? But the ancients believe that one of the ways God spoke to us was through nature. They believe that one of the ways that God revealed who God is was through nature. 
So for them, it wasn't yet you'll have ancient societies who worship the sun. But you'll also have ancient God people who, when they saw the sun, they saw, wow, that's a representation of God because the sun gives light and God gives me light. The sun gives hope and God gives me hope. The sun gives light and direction and God gives me light and direction. So there were some people who weren't worshiping nature, but they were saying nature speaks to me. As God speaks to me because God created it to reveal who God is. And so when he uses the term son of righteousness, what, what God is saying is like, just like the sun gives you light and life and hope, that's what I'm going to give to you. So when we sing songs like, you know, like the sun will rise or the, the, between the just and the unjust, or we quote these verses, what God is saying is when you look outside, and most of us, right, don't have to worry, like tomorrow morning we're pretty sure the sun is going to come up. But we might not be sure that God will be there for us. And so what this does is inverse that. By saying that, like, just like you know the sun will rise, you can depend on me being there for you. And that's what nature does for us sometimes, right? It reminds us that we are smaller than we like to think that we are. It reminds us that we're a part of a whole. It reminds us that we belong to not just each other, but even the creation too. So God says, the sun will rise and healing will come in his wings. I love this. Because it's something not just about, oh, God's sin. There's a lot of characterizations of God and even how God presents himself and he's God our Father. There's an intentional writing here in the Hebrew of a maternal kind of love. It doesn't mean that fathers can't be maternal, fathers can't be caring. But there's a certain amount of, 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 of nuance in this that says God will bring healing that comes in the wings. And the idea of the wings is that I will spread out and cover you. I will spread out and let you in. I will cover you and make you feel safe. And not only will I make you feel safe, I will heal you until you're ready to go back out there. That's what Jesus is promising in the day to come, but that's what he's promising in being the son of righteousness. My righteousness will rise to give you hope and light and life, but my healing will also come. And it'll be a healing that's unique to you. And that's the thing about this life, isn't it? We all have burdens that we carry. We all have wounds that are seen and unseen. We all have hurts that live deep within us and some we can't help but carry on the skin. But praise God that He promises that whatever healing you need, you can find in God. That whatever healing you need in this moment, you can find in Him. Praise God that you can trust Him, not just to give you life and life and hope, but also healing. And He says, I will come and give healing in your wounds. And He wants the people to know that hope will come, but your way is not in vain. But not too many times, I'm, like, I'm probably never going to do this ever again, actually, when I think about it. But not too many times you're going to say, hey, as God's people, I want us to be you. Frolicking like well fed cows. That is the NIV version. The Hebrew culture to I want you to be so happy or fat and happy. Like that's what the NIV changes. I think well fed cows sounds a lot better, right? But if we go back to the ancient understanding, and we see this mostly outside of the West, even to this day, but there are certain societies and cultures that literally, how big and heavy you are means that's how blessed you are. 
Now, the upper back is the room side I am. I'm not saying this is what I believe. I'm not even saying this is healthy and good. I'm just saying that when you leave the West and you go to another culture, if somebody's skinny, you might be like, I don't love him. And if somebody's a little bit bigger, they're like, wow, God really loves him a little too much. Right? And that's kind of the ancient understanding they're pulling from here. Is there's going to come a day that when that hope comes, because what has to happen for the calves to get well fed and fat? They have to stay They have to wait. They have to trust uh, the shepherd to bring the food. They have to eat the food. They have to grow. They have to not only grow, but grow and grow and grow. And only when they were ready would they be let out. And when they were let out, they would let out in freedom. Malachi and God, Yahweh, seems to be saying that you might be in a season of waiting. You might not be at the destination yet. You might not even know where we're going. But are you willing to submit to me today? And then while you're waiting, are you willing to actually be fed by me? I think this is a challenge to us. Because we live in a society that goes, especially us as adults, we have access to so much information. I have one friend who listens to more podcasts that I know were even possible. Right? Like, he probably does safely eight to ten a day. And I talk for a living. And I'm just like, that's too much. Right? And this is me who talks a lot. Right? But the challenge for us isn't that do we have information on things. The challenge for us is who's actually feeding us. Who are we actually listening and submitting to? What are we actually allowing in our brains, right? Because here's the thing, our thoughts often lead to our habits, and our habits often lead to our beliefs, our thoughts lead to our beliefs, and our beliefs lead to our habits, right? So what we're pouring into us is affecting who we are. And if we want to be these well-fed cows that are going to go out and frolic in the name of the Lord, we need to be fed by the Lord. And so that's the challenge to us, right? Like, when I'm getting all this information about all these things I want to get, is it based in anything of what I believe? Is it even from who I believe in? Is it to uplift me or to stop on my brother and sister? Is it to make me feel good or is it to challenge me to be good and to be better? So, so we can be well-fed, but only if it comes from the Lord Jesus who's our shepherd. And so for some of us, it's taking a step back and really assessing all the things we're imbibing, all the things we're taking in, and asking ourselves that honest question. Is this actually building me up? And if we want to be a good Christian, we can say, is this actually for the kingdom? Is this actually improving what I understand about my God or what I understand for the kingdom as I go out? That's what it means to be well fed. Because the wicked will be placed under your feet. And I love this idea of the wicked will be placed. Because the whole premise and the whole nuance and the whole story of the book so far has been why are they who are bad up there? And there seems to be a promise in the ancient text or in the Old Testament text that's saying that like, the wicked might seem like they're winning, but there's a day coming where they will be humble. And you, the humble, might seem like you're losing, but your triumph is here, but your triumph is only in Jesus' name, and only when Jesus comes back, and only when Jesus does it. There seems to be this, 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 this reminder that don't worry about those on top. If they're not living to please me, they're not going to end up near the top. They might as well be under your feet. 
And then after he goes through this day of judgment, the center of the passage is this, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb or Sinai for all of Israel. One of the ways that God wants us to be planted in the now, not just dreaming of the world to come or, 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 or bemoaning the world that is, one of the things that God calls us to do right now is to remember. And for them, it was first of all remembering the law, remembering the Torah, remembering the commandments, remembering who I called you to be. And the idea of remembering wasn't just reciting, right? The idea of remembering was actually knowing and doing. If you can just recite the 619 commandments, you might be a really good Pharisee or a really good scribe. But you may not be faithful to God at all. Because God doesn't just want us to know the law and know what He wants from us. God wants us to actually do it. It's not enough for me to know you love me if you don't actually love me. The same thing applies to our God, right? He wants us to remember what He's called us to be. And He says, I want you to remember the covenant. I want you to remember that we are in this thing together. I want you to remember that even though for generations you've been unfaithful, I have been faithful. I want you to remember that I'm always on your side. I want you to remember that I'm working for your good. I want you to remember that we're in this thing together. And every time you fail me, you're ripping a fabric into this covenant relationship. There's also a sense here that I want you to remember the story. I think that's something we ought to be doing a little bit better. Most of us who have children, if they're going to come into the faith, more than likely, it's not going to be because, you know, we argued them into the kingdom. It's probably not even going to be because we, we memorized the perfect way to explain Jesus to them. But it just might be how we live, how we love, how we submit, and the values that we have if they reflect like Jesus or not. And so that's the challenge to us because to the world around us who may never open the Bible or the scriptures, it might be the only story of Jesus they ever read. So remembering the story is not just knowing the story, but actually living the story. And for them, part of that story was saying, God praised you for being the God who was, the God who is, the God who will be. But that big God is the God who's with you now. Part of their story was God. Thank you for being the God of the world. You're the God who saw me suffering, God in Egypt, enslaved and oppressed and beaten and being killed. And you brought me out of the mire, out of the slave, into the promised land. Part of the story was saying, God, I know I've been unfaithful to you. I know we've been unfaithful to you. But praise you that you're always on our side. That you're not just a forgiving God, but that you bring us and invite us back home. Remember what God has called us to be. Remember the relationship we're in. Remember the story. But please, please remember who your God is. Because if we do not remember who our God is, it'll be a lot easier for the world to tell us who our God is. If we're not listening and, and actually submitting to the Holy Spirit and being fed by our God and learning who He is, the scary thing is, we might not want to, but our default will be to build our God in our own image. And there's a difference there, right? If you say we're all created in the image of God, then I'm putting God in my image. If you said I put God in the box, and then I can explain who God is. And that's the thing. God is not just this big God who's bigger than everything. 
But God is the God who wants to be known. God is the God who wants to be known by you. But God isn't a God who wants to submit to you. So we cannot be creating Him in our own image. And so after He tells them, remember the law, remember the covenant, remember the church, remember who I am, He goes back to the messengers to come. He says, hey, and Elijah will come to prepare the way. Now, for us as Christians, it's easy, right? Because we're like, well, that's John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist comes, he, he calls people to repentance. But so, Jewish people and people who would have lived this and, and had this for generations, who had passed over every year at Passover, at the dinner table, they leave a seat open for John the Baptist. Or our outside for Elijah. Because they believe fully what God's saying in Malachi. And I think that that, 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 that does something in my head, folks, a lot of things in my head. But a one, part of me admires their commitment to this promise that God has made that an Elijah will come. Because here's my thing. If I believe Elijah will come, Elijah will come, I might stop setting the accidentally. That's just me. But I'm greedy. That's just food good, right? Part of me admires that for them, it's like, okay, God said Elijah is coming, let's set him a place. And we'll wait. And every year, as part of that Passover story, we'll remember that God has made this promise. But it's also scary because it means that it is possible for God to move, for God to send, for God to place people in our lives, for God to reveal. All these things can be true. And we can still miss it. And to me, that's a reminder of the need of community. That's a reminder of the need of one another. That's a reminder of the need to depend on one another. Because in my case, as only solitary individual, I might miss what God is doing among us. Because I'm looking for what God is doing in me. And I'm not saying it's wrong to look for what God is doing in you, but I'm saying it's all my faith is by what God is doing in me. I just might miss what God is doing in us, in our world, in everyone else around me. And so that's the push here, because this Elijah did come, but the people missed it, because they looked at the single focus of what does it mean for me, instead of what does it mean for our world. And then in the end, I love this picture. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children, the hearts of the children to their parents. I love that in the day to come, God's just not obsessed with, with reconciliation, restoration, redemption with him. But God seems to believe and God seems to institute that in the end, we will finally be fully reconciled to one another. Uh, some people who believe that this isn't just a literal fathers and sons, but some people who believe that it's, it's actually the faith of the, the fathers, the faith of the mothers, the faith of the, of the ancestors have gone before. But I think just that practical example of those of us who are in complicated families, of those of us who carry hurts from our families, and of those of us who've done hurt in our families. I think there's a practical word here that says, that part of following God is having hope that no matter what separation we're going through, no matter what pain we're carrying, no matter what division we created or fostered or maintained, that God desires to be reconciled to each other too. And the work for us in this 
is not the way to the day that he comes, but the such that works today. Amen? And then he ends with something that kind of troubles a lot of the ancient writers and scribes, right? Because this is the last verse of the Old Testament. After you turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and hearts of children to the parents, parents, it says, or else, I will come and strike the land with full destruction. There's a group of Hebrew scholars who didn't like that. So they actually said, well, that's not the real last verse. So let's take the words before and put that after it again. So if you read in that text, you'll read 565, five, right? So literally you'll read, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. That sounds bad. So he will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. And they end there. And then there's a reason they do that because it's like, that's not the ending they wanted. That's not the destination they wanted to be. But why does God include this? Because this entire book of Malachi is about what? It's about covenant. It's about covenant. And what is covenant? It is you deciding to not just be in relationship with God, but to be faithful to God. And God says, just because I love you, doesn't mean you don't have to be faithful anymore. Just because I belong to you and you belong to me doesn't mean you get to, 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 to live apart from me. You don't get to call me God and not submit to me. And so this idea to be faithful, it's, it, it, it's monumental and it wraps up the entire book. Because I think what Malachi or God through Malachi wants the people to know, and I would say this morning, wants us to know, is that our faithfulness matters now and in the end. Don't just worry about the end if you're not faithful now. Our faithfulness matters now. And here's the thing that's wild to me. There's 400 years, at least, between this book of Malachi and John the Baptist coming. In those 400 years, the people will see Rome come in and destroy everything they want. They will see another oppressor come in. They will see their faith splinter in so many different directions. They would see uh, uh, this God that the promise of the promise place. They would lose it yet again. Four hundred years, they felt like God was silent. And you know what's amazing is that during those four hundred years, the people were still faithful. And those were some of the people who were the first followers of Jesus and the first followers of John the Baptist before Jesus. I think all of that's important because when we think about our faith. Maybe some of you feel like the cat who's still in, I don't know, what would a cat be in? A barn? Let's go with it. It's not like my father-in-law's a, 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 a farmer or anything. He'll probably just own me for this. The, the, the cats are in the barn, I think, right? So some of us might be cats in the barn. And, and so part of the work right now is stopping and saying, God, I need you to feed me. I don't know what all I've been eating, but it's been destructive to me and it's not building me up. I need you to feed me directly. And maybe that's where you are. But then there's some of us who are maybe you're out there and you're being faithful and you look around you and no one else is faithful. You look around you and everything is dark. You look around you and nothing is good. And God's still saying, I still want you to be faithful to me. And maybe there's some of us who've been faithful for decades in following Jesus decades of faithful service to him. And we're getting to the point now where we're just like, God, I still need you to move. But our faithfulness matters now. And I'm grateful to God that we don't have to wait 400 years. But I'm grateful to God for the testimony that we carry that goes on to our children and our grandchildren 
that goes out to our friends and our family and their children and generations and goes on and on and on. I'm glad that that faithfulness carries on. Everything you do matters. How you live matters. How you love matters. Who you are matters. But who you are in Christ must matter the most. Because God is good. And because He's good all the time, we can trust in His mercy. Because God is true. Because God is true all the time, we can trust in whatever judgment is to come. And because God is ours, I think that's how about that can Because God is ours, we can know that His promises are true. I call it the worship team. We're going to end singing a song about God's promises. In this song, we'll talk about God being the God of Abraham. The, the man that God chose to birth his people there are the people who birthed the Messiah, the Messiah who birthed the world. And in the song of God's faithful promises that we're going to sing, I want us to be reminded that God is faithful and calls us to be faithful too. That God is merciful and calls us to be merciful too. But also that our God is joy. And I pray for all of us this week or even today that as we think about our faithfulness with God, and we find the true joy in serving Him. Amen? I'd um, like to invite up any of the pastors to be up front. We'd love to pray for you for anything you've got going on. Uh, but as we sing this song, we need to be reminded of how good our God is. Let's say the thing to us.
We thank you for the light that you promised. We thank you for the hope that you give. Holy Spirit, we pray even right now that we may be thinking about ways that we can give more of ourselves to you. Lord, we believe in you. We love you. We, we live in all of you. For God, now help us to fully surrender to you. If there's a part of our life or a piece of our life that we haven't fully given to you yet, God, let today be the day of that salvation. Let today be the day that we give that to you. Let us live fully in submission to you. And God of promises. Help us to remember even in this moment one promise you made to us. So maybe we feel all alone. So help us to know you'll never leave us off the speaker. Maybe we feel like there's no hope tomorrow. So help us to know that you're the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. God, maybe we feel like just everything is falling apart all around us. But help us to know that you're with us that you're carrying us through, that you promise, that you promise to work together for our good. So God of promises, help us to hold on to your promises even in this moment. And lastly, our God, we thank you for Jesus our Christ. We thank you for that son of righteousness. We thank you for Jesus who gives us life, who gives us light, who gives us hope, who gives us a, a better tomorrow, but also welcomes us home today. The Holy Spirit, be with us now as we depart. Jesus, guide us as we walk. And Father God, may all that we do, may how we live, may how we love, only glorify you. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you all. Have a good week. Thank you.